0: CHAPTER ELEVEN OF SILVER CHIMES IN SYRIA GLIMPSES OF A MISSIONARY'S EXPERIENCES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farah Iftikhar. SILVER CHIMES IN SYRIA GLIMPSES OF A MISSIONARY'S EXPERIENCES BY WILLIAM S. NELSON Interruptions. Our life in Syria has been, on the whole, quiet, but it has not been without its shadows. There is no life without its sorrows and unexpected experiences. The comparative isolation of missionary life brings into very close fellowship those who are cut off from the closer relationship to friends in the homeland. One Sunday afternoon in the fall of 1906, I was standing in the back of our chapel, awaiting the closing exercises of the Sunday school. The telegraph messenger appeared at the door and handed me a telegram, for which I signed without serious thought. When I opened the paper and read the wholly unexpected message, all strength seemed to leave me, and I hastened to a seat, lest I fall to the floor. The message told of the sudden death of my brother-in-law, Reverend W.K. Eddy of Sidon, while away from home on a tour. We had considered him one of the most vigorous men in the mission, for whom years of active service might be expected, and now, in a moment, he had been called away, leaving his family and his work to others. It took time to realise the situation, but some things had to be done at once. I called my servant and sent him, to secure an animal, as I had to start at once for Sidon. Arrangements had to be made for my absence, and the sad news had to be broken to the Tripoli circle of friends. By five o'clock I was ready to start, and I shall never forget that night's ride. The first twenty miles were covered in the early evening hours, on horseback over a rough, stony road, while the question kept ringing through my mind, why should this be? "'About ten o'clock I reached the carriage road "'where I could take a more comfortable and speedy conveyance. "'All through the dark night, as I jolted over the road, "'trying to get a little rest in preparation for the hard day before me, "'I could not turn my mind from the many problems "'connected with this sad experience. "'Who would take up the work thus suddenly dropped? "'What plan would be made for the family of growing children?' The night was dark, but the dawn was approaching. The way seemed dark, but the Father's love had brought us to this point, and he would not leave us to walk alone. In the early dawn, I reached Beirut and found the missionary friends there, ready to start for Sidon, and so we all went on together, reaching the darkened home about noon. The large assembly hall was filled in the afternoon for the funeral services, and a great crowd of all classes of people marched out to the cemetery, where the mortal remains of our loved brother and fellow worker were laid away. Those are the precious spots where we do the last service on earth for those we have loved, but they are doubly precious on the mission field, where the distance from the great body of family, friends, and relatives is so deeply felt but these occasions strengthen the ties that bind us to the hearts and lives of those among whom we live and whom we serve. We had scarcely adjusted ourselves to this sorrow when another of the hard experiences of life came upon us. The season had been one of exceptionally heavy work and continuous strain, which showed in a decided break in health the doctor said work must be dropped at once and the winter be spent in egypt if a more serious break were to be avoided it was not exactly a pleasure excursion on which we started during the christmas holidays there was no time to write ahead and make inquiries or arrangements so we set out to a strange land among strangers in search of health finding no place which seemed suitable in lower egypt we decided to go up the river to Assiut and wrote a letter to Dr. Alexander, president of the United Presbyterian College at that place. We had no personal acquaintance and no claim upon him, but he was a missionary, and that was enough. It was a long ride, and Egyptian railroads are nothing if not dusty. Our spirits had not begun to rise yet, and we felt rather tired and wholly disreputable in appearance when we left the train at Asyut, ready to ask our way to the Greek hotel. But before we had a chance to do anything, we saw a bright, cheery face bearing an evident welcome and a hearty voice assuring us that the owner was Dr Alexander and that he had come to take us in charge. It was the first encouraging incident, and lifted a weight from us at once. As we walked along, he told us they had held a conference over our case, and, having decided that we could not be comfortable in the hotel, had placed at our disposal a restroom provided in the hospital for members of their own mission or other foreigners who needed rest and medical attention. A more perfect provision for our need could not have been devised, We enjoyed the companionship of the core of foreign nurses, sharing their table and home life. We had the constant companionship as well as the professional services of the four medical missionaries. Is it a wonder that I began to gain at once? After nine weeks we returned to our work, made over and with a new lease of life, a new sense of the solidarity of Christian fellowship, and a new realization of the Heavenly Father's tender care such experiences as that winter at assiute show how entirely denominational differences are forgotten on the mission field in social intercourse in the prayer circle in discussion of mission problems in the church service in the pulpit there was never anything to remind us that we were only presbyterians while our kind hosts were united presbyterians it was a delightful opportunity for the cultivation of fellowship and for the observation of other forms and methods of mission work, under conditions very different from ours in Syria. The work in Egypt is relieved from many of the problems so insistent in Turkey. There is no hostile government, always suspicious of every move made by a foreigner. There is no such insufficiency in the government as makes the lives of Turkish subjects always insecure and travel dangerous. But, on the other hand the climatic conditions in egypt are far more trying than in syria as the heat is extremely enervating for most of the year these climatic conditions undoubtedly account to some extent for the less virile independent character of the people but whatever the differences in climate whatever the differences in the character of the people whatever the differences in governmental relations we came back from egypt more than ever impressed with the fact that the conflict is one the object aimed at is one and the body of workers is one under the direction of our one lord and master in nineteen eleven there came another break in the routine life of the field but with no such sorrow in it as in the former incidents the second conference for workers in muslim lands met in lucknow in january nineteen eleven and our mission chose me as its delegate to that conference the journey through the suez canal and down the red sea and across the arabian sea to bombay was one of the experiences of life never to be forgotten There were enough of us going on the same journey to form a little group of sympathetic companions, and we had many an opportunity, at table and on deck, to talk over the matters connected with our life-work. The contrasts in the streets of Bombay are similar to those seen in all the changing Orient, but with characteristic differences calculated to catch the eye of one accustomed to the nearer East. Nowhere in Turkey do you find such broad, significant paved thoroughfares as those in Bombay, and yet, beside the track of the electric trolley, you see a crude cart jogging along behind the humpbacked bullock. On the pavements, you see elaborately dressed ladies from Europe or from the wealthy Parse families, with their Paris gowns and modern hats, and almost at the elbows the dark-skinned members of the sweeper-caste clad in a simple loincloth. You step out of the finely appointed barber shop in your modern hotel with its polite English-speaking attendant to see by the roadside a group of swarthy Indians crouching on the ground as one of their number shaves the crowns off their heads. The tourist in Galilee in the spring of the year is impressed by the variety and brilliancy of colour all about him in the wild flowers of the fields as we walked the streets of bombay the same impression was made upon us by the brightness and variety in the headdress of the men if there is any colour known to the dyer's art not found among the turbans of bombay it is merely because no samples have as yet been sent there Every shape as well as every shade is found, and it would almost seem as if the excessive attention paid to the head covering had exhausted the energy of the people, leaving no desire or ability to devise any covering for the rest of the body. A stranger may wonder also at first why everyone seems to have forgotten to wash his face. Those curious blotches of vari-coloured clay on the forehead are not accidental, nor an indication of carelessness to one's personal appearance. On the contrary, they indicate fidelity to religious duty and reveal to the initiated the special temple most recently visited by the devout worshipper. For a transient visitor, this variety and intricacy are puzzling, but to the initiated, everything has its meaning and the varieties of headdress tell the tale of religious affiliation and caste gradation. Comfortable train service carried us quickly to the north, giving us glimpses of delhi the ancient mogul capital with its reminders of the mutiny and agra with its matchless architectural gem the taj mahal we reached agra at the close of the day and after locating ourselves at the hotel set out on foot to have our first glimpse of the taj by moonlight no matter what one may have read of this wonderful building no matter what pictures or models one may have seen i have yet to meet a person who has not been most deeply impressed by the first vision of the reality the approach through the dark foliage of the quiet garden gives a chance for the impressive grandeur of the marble structure to fix itself in the visitor's mind By the time he enters the spacious archway he has begun to appreciate the perfection of the curves the nobility of the dimensions the purity of the white marble and the graceful dignity of the whole combination the beautifully inlaid black lettering from the quran follows the curves of the lofty arch overhead adding a sense of sacredness to the entrance and yet When one is inside, he almost forgets the impressions received without. In place of stateliness and grandeur, we find here a beauty of finish, and exactness of detail which surpass all the more massive qualities of the exterior. The central tomb is surrounded by a marble screen carved with a delicacy that makes one forget the marble and think he sees before him the most perfect and delicate lace veil the pillars and panels of the screen the inner walls of the building as well as the sides of the tomb itself are decorated with the most beautifully inlaid work of vines and wreaths of flowers represented in their natural colours in the most delicate shades of precious stone one wonders to find such exquisite work anywhere and the wonder increases when one realises that this is not the product of modern skill and patience, but that it has stood here from the days of the Mughal Empire, when we consider that India was a land of barbarians. And more than this is to follow, for this wonderful mausoleum was erected at fabulous cost by a Moslem ruler in memory of his wife. We were not in India merely as sightseers, after a night ride on the train we reached Lahore in the early morning and at the station received the hearty welcome of J C R Ewing, D, D. President of Foreman Christian College. Again, in northern India we had the loving hand clasp of a fellow missionary and the cordial welcome to a missionary home. The short visit there could give us but a faint impression of what that college is doing for the Punjab and what a position and influence the missionaries have among the people of every class, whether Indian or British. Never did I have such a vivid impression of the awful experiences of the mutiny or the wonderful changes wrought by British rule in India as when I stood on some of the memorable spots at Cornpool and Lucknow, and reviewed the record of treachery and loyalty, cowardice and bravery, cruelty and gallantry, which were developed in the awful experiences of the mutiny. Today, no matter what may be the restlessness and uncertainty of the situation, India is a united country, and not a medley of hostile principalities and warring kingdoms. Railroads cover the land in every direction with an efficient service, Perfect carriage roads make the land a paradise for motor cars and bicycles. Military encampments near all the large cities assure security of life and property. Schools and colleges are extending knowledge in every direction. Wealth is taking place of poverty, knowledge of ignorance, light of darkness, and religion is coming into its own as a real force in human life, and no longer as merely a badge of faction or clan. The gathering at Lucknow was notable. Delegates of many nationalities gathered in that hall, workers in many lands and in widely differing conditions, we came together for a common purpose. Members of many Christian denominations were united in the worship of one master. Differences were forgotten in a deeper union. Whatever allegiance we owed to earthly sovereigns, we met as children of the heavenly king. Whatever may have been the language of our ordinary service, here we had but one language, that of loving fellowship. We were members of separate bands of commissioners, coming together at the feet of our leader to ask for the fuller instructions in the pursuit of his work. The keynote of the Lucknow Conference was to win the Muslim world by love, the love of Christ incarnate in his messenger it is one of the most hopeful signs in the advancement of the kingdom that the attractive power of love is more prominent than the overwhelming power of argument it is a great help to the right placing of this emphasis that workers in many lands of many nations of many denominations are drawing nearer together and working more in harmony i returned from india rejoicing in all i had seen of god's power and blessing in that land but with a deeper conviction that the work in India, in China, in Africa, in Syria is all one work under one master. End of chapter 11. Interruptions. Recording by Farah Iftikar.